We have uh, quite a bit to go through today, and again, I talked last week, I was maybe a little bit overzealous when I uh, scheduled this series, thinking we could go through this whole chapter, and then I realized it's also a communion Sunday. And so we're going we're gonna to be going through some really important text today, but all of this text as it was written to this church, uh, this Thessalonian church, was, was Paul reminding them that, that there is a future that is before them, that has not yet come. And as we read it today, it's the same idea that there's a future ahead of us 2,000 years later that has not come. And it's meant to give us such great confidence and encouragement in the Lord that, that God holds all things together in his hands, that we can look to the future with this great hope, that we can look to the future without fear. And this is really this hope is the hallmark of a healthy Christian church. And so as we've gone through this series, it's about being hopeful and healthy. We're reminded today that we cannot be a healthy church unless we exhibit this hope in Christ. So we're going to read this entire uh, chapter. We're going to hone in on just, uh, just some portions of it today. But 2 Thess- Thessalonians 2, at chapters 1 through 17. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to talk about these things? And now you know that you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed. And word. Did you get all that? Pretty, pretty easy, simple, straightforward. 
You know, when I uh, put this schedule together and, and when the bulletin came out this week and someone saw that I was going to be speaking on 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness, they said, good luck, Dominic, good luck. And I think there's this pressure when you read this uh, to want to know every detail of what's happening, to maybe assume who the man of lawlessness is, and to now chart our future based on what we read and put all these pieces together and that's the moment, I think, where you kind of need some luck. Uh, because I think that's the wrong way to read this text, is to say, I know who the man of lawlessness is. And I think that's why this text becomes really difficult for many people to wade through. But I think at the heart of it, it's actually much more simple. And this, the text kind of speaks for itself that Paul here is offering some great encouragement to a church that is really struggling because they're looking at this future with fear and anxiety because they're believing a lie. And the big lie here that they're being told is that Jesus had already come back, that he already gathered the saints to him, and now they were in the midst of what we know of as the day of the Lord, or the, the final coming of Jesus, when it's this, you know, this great tribulation, and, and then there's this great judgment on the earth. And so they're kind of freaking out, thinking this is already happening. But Paul is telling them there's much more to happen that hasn't happened yet. And even as we read this, we don't have all the details, but we know enough that even today, this stuff hasn't happened yet. So we don't have to feel like we were, quote, left behind. But that God is still with us, that he's still working, and, and all things are going to come together in his plan and in his timing. And now we're kind of in the side seat of all of this. We just have this great trust in him and this encouragement that he's going to do exactly what he sees fit for himself and also for the church, that we're in this great care. And the first point we take out of this is that there needs to be this guarding against deception. These first three verses of, of the chapter are pretty easy to understand. That there's this false teaching, as I said, that we're, they're holding on to, and, and they're now not sure what's going to happen in the future. And the, verse 3 says it very clearly. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. And deception is something that we all face in life, not just from Satan, who is the great deceiver, but deception in general is something we're really easy, it's easy for us to uh, succumb to. And you've probably received the email before from the deposed prince of Nigeria, who's in prison, and he searched the whole world for the most noble person that could inherit his hundreds of millions of dollars of riches. And you know what? He chose you. And he found your email address. And all you have to do is just send him a couple of hundred dollars to post bail, which, again, I don't understand why he wouldn't just take it from his millions. But if you do that, if you wire it to him through Western Union, he'll give you a hundred million dollars in thanks and gratitude for how noble you are. Now, you'd think no one would fall for that, but people do. And deception is around us. And, and people, I think, have in their own nature this willingness to want to believe lies. Sometimes because it serves them, sometimes because they just don't know any better. And now this church is, is dealing with the same concept that there's false teachers in, who previously, as we read in the last letter, said, you know what, all of those uh, people who had died, all of your friends and loved ones, they're just going to miss out. And he, he dispelled that uh, false teaching in the last letter, saying that whether you're dead or alive, when Jesus comes back, it doesn't matter. And now he's really saying, you know what, Jesus has not come back, despite how much you might believe this from these, these lies. But lies only have power for as long as you hold on to them. And what he's trying to do with this church is, is tell them that there's truth you need to hold on to, 
to have a hope in the future. They became easily unsettled, which is a way of, of kind of showing up. They've lost composure. They're shaken up emotionally or, or mentally. They're kind of this mental wreck. And that they're alarmed by this, which is a much stronger word, which means that there's this, this fright and shock. Again, it's like this kind of this freaking out, that they're seeing everything happening before them, all these hardships, and now they're assuming they're in this day of the Lord. And God left them behind in it. His advice Pay no attention to these lies, no matter how you've heard them, by prophecy or word of mouth or, or by letter. And again, they're, they're saying that these came from Paul and his team. Pay no attention to those things and hold on to the truth. And I think as a church, when we want to look to the future without fear, that's our, our application today. Is that if you build your faith upon, upon these false premises, you're prone to a life of fear and confusion. God has his truth for us that we can see very clearly that there's a great hope in the future for every Christian. But if you really start building upon these false premises, you're going to be confused. You're going to be fearful. I'm going to throw out a, a, a hypothetical for you all. You may not be able to identify with this specifically, but certainly with this concept. Let's just say you're at work and, and things are going great. You're crushing it at work, right? You're getting all of your goals. You've been there for a long time. You're well-liked. The clients love you. And you're, you're getting to the end of the work week. It's, it's 4.30 on a Friday. You've got this great weekend planned ahead of you. But then the boss comes by. Knock, knock, knock. Could you meet with me first thing on Monday? Say 8 o'clock Monday morning. You say, of course I can. And the boss walks away and you go, oh no. What's happening here? You start asking your other coworkers, do you have a meeting with the boss? No. Do you know what's going on? No. And the one coworker who kind of knows everything says, well, I heard that they're going to have to let some people go due to financial difficulties, and maybe you're one of them. Now your mind starts to reel, and you start to get angry. I've done so much for this company. I've, I've done so many good things. And, and now you go home, and you bring this, this struggle home with you, and, and you're just kind of chippy with your family. What was going to be a great weekend is now a terrible weekend, the longest weekend of your life. You start planning out your life. of I'm just going to sell my house. I'm going to lose my job on Monday, so we might as well move and, and just say goodbye to my friends now and start looking for jobs in the market. And Now Sunday night, you're wondering if I should even go to work tomorrow. What's the point? Might as well just quit before they fire me. But you make your way in, dejected and afraid. You go to the boss's office and starts out with, you know what? You've been with us for a very long time. And this is somewhat overdue. Oh, no. You say, what's coming next? You've been awarded employee of the year. And you get a great bonus, your own parking spot, and an extra week of vacation. We value you so highly. We want you to stay here forever. See, you have all things, all things ruined by letting this lie or this deception or even these assumptions just kind of live in your heart. And the point here is, this, this illustration might be frivolous, but the point is not. That's, that's what's happening with these Thessalonian believers is, is they're letting these things just run amok in their mind. To the point that they're out of control emotionally. And Paul's premise here is deject any kind of deception or, or, or lie and hold on to the truth. Hold on to the truth and understand that God has a plan. And that's where we get into the middle part of this chapter, really verses 3 through 12, talking about God's plan for the future and unveiling this figure he calls the man of lawlessness. 
Uh, this figure is only found here in all of the Bible. The man of lawlessness is only mentioned here by this title. It's this, this person that's been kind of cloaked in mystery through the ages, and many people have tried to assume who this man of lawlessness is, and up to now, everyone has failed. But it is a, a person that's going to be uh, in, in uh, conjunction with the day of the Lord, the return of Christ. And he's, he's giving them this, this, this picture of what's ahead, and, and basically saying, this hasn't happened yet, so Jesus has not returned yet. Don't worry. This is all to be of great encouragement to these believers. And it's hard to understand this, one, because it's just a pretty succinct portion. Uh, you kind of read this, and you wish there was ten times as much telling you what's, what's happening. But also because we have different ways of viewing the end times. And as you put together kind of your viewpoint or maybe a timeline of the return of Christ, it really requires looking at a lot of different scriptures and, and putting together sometimes just your best assumptions. And so even here today, I know among all of us that there's going to be people who differ on, on your views of, of the end times and what it's going to look like. And that's okay. I think there's room to differ among that in Christians. But but I think the two most common views in the evangelical church, both are, are probably premillennial, which means that there's going to be this literal thousand-year reign of Christ. And, and really the biggest difference is the timing of the rapture. When does the rapture come? We talked about that earlier in this series. Does it come before this great tribulation? Or does it come uh, after the great tribulation? Or maybe sometime in the middle. And, and people kind of differ on this, and, and that's okay. But I think the majority believe that, that the rapture is going to come before the tribulation. This, these seven years, and that's kind of the, the start of the day of the Lord, is that, that Jesus will gather all of the saints up to him, as we read in, in verse 3, that, uh, or in verse 2. They've got all the saints to him, that the rebellion or this, uh, this tribulation is going to occur. And during that time, this man of lawlessness will rise up into power and prominence. All right, then after all of that, Jesus will return with the church, and that's like battle of Armageddon, evil is, is vanquished, and now Satan is bound, and then there's this thousand-year reign of Christ, this thousand-year reign of peace, and then there's one final kind of small rebellion, and then the day of judgment, and now heaven and earth become one. That's the most common way of looking at it, and kind of the assumption we're going to take as we go through the text today. And the whole point of this is don't be alarmed, because none of this stuff has happened yet. Jesus has not returned for the rapture to gather his saints. There is no Antichrist. There is no tribulation right now. You're going through tough stuff, but it's not that. And so we're going to take this moment to very quickly go through, in the cliff note version, about this man of lawlessness, what we understand from the text today. I'm going to give you eight points, and at the end they're all going to be on the screen at once, so you can just take a snapshot of that if you'd like at the end. But this is again through verses 3 through 12 that this man of lawlessness is going to appear during what is re referred to as the Great Rebellion. And most assume that also means this tribulation, this seven-year period of hardships around the world. And rebellion is also known as apostasy. And that really refers to like a soldier leading their, leaving their post during conflict or turning away from the faith. Now, if you believe that the rapture happens before this, those who would fall away from the faith are those who profess a faith but weren't actually real in their faith. And so when the tough times come, they turn away from the faith during this great rebellion. And this is something we've seen uh, through all of history, is that people sometimes kind of fall away from the faith. 
Uh, but this is going to be of great magnitude. This is going to be a worldwide event of which there is this concerted effort to rebel against God and is going to be led by this man of lawlessness. And he will be revealed or unveiled. And what this means is that this is a real person. Okay, It's not like uh, Jesus who came in as an incarnate uh, and, and dwelled in flesh. This is a real person right? who is who's kind of uh, controlled by Satan. And it's possible this person is living on the earth right now and will be revealed. It's possible this person will be uh, born a thousand years from now. It's, it's hard to say. But it's pretty clear here that the man of lawlessness is talking about what the Apostle John would call the Antichrist, someone who opposes God and, and works very hard to dismantle all of God's law and order. Another word for lawlessness here is sin. This is a person who, who embodies really the power of sin and promotes it throughout the world. And it's, it's really hard to imagine how terrible this person will be. But they will outdo any historical leader or figure we've ever seen in the past, this land of, man of lawlessness. And this is the person that will oppose worship of God or anything that resembles uh, the worship of the divine. And that's in verse 4. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. And this means not just the opposition of, of the worship of, of the true God, but the worship of any God. That he will wage war against everything that hints at religion, faith, spirituality. Try to eradicate worship of any kind, prayers, songs, gatherings even pagan shrines and pagan idols. And they'll take it one step further and claim all deity for himself. That he will set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And by temple, if they mean the, the literal temple of Jerusalem, that'd have to be rebuilt. If he means the temple is in like God's church, well, the church would be gone in the raptures. It's hard to say what, what is actually meant here. But the idea is that this is going to be this proclamation of like a worldwide magnitude, that he will call himself God and desire to be worshipped. It's all making sense? Tracking here? This is where verse 5 is kind of nice, because Paul kind of takes that moment too. He's like, don't you guys remember that when I was with you, I told you all about these things? And so really what we're seeing is actually... Cliff notes of the two verses of cliff notes that he gave this church that he must have talked much more about. But even then, they, they had more information than we do, and they are still having a hard time with it. And I think this is just, again, how God kind of de has developed the end times, that it is cloaked somewhat in mystery. He doesn't give us all of the details, but he gives us enough details to know, to encourage us, and to drive us deeper into faith, to trust him in all things that are going to come. We also see that this man of lawlessness will display great power. And this is through uh, Satan's work or Satan's energy. And we talk about uh, that he's going to be having this coming in, in verse 9. The coming of the lawless man will be in, cord in accordance with how Satan works. So he's mimicking Jesus in, in just about every way. So Jesus came from heaven to earth, and now we have this man who's coming from earth and kind of appointing himself in heaven. Right? He's going to have these signs and wonders, or some translations call it false miracles. And so this power is not meant to heal or repair people. It's really meant to lead them into the lies and deception and destruction. It's apparent that it's not just going to be some normal man, but this would kind of be like Satan's Superman. He will have power above and beyond the earthly. He'll be have, having this spiritual or supernatural power in him. 
and he's going to be held back until the proper time. And this is where we start to find some comfort here, right? Verses 6 and 7, I'll read those again. That you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And it's this idea that this man of lawlessness inspired by Satan is trying to push into the world at all times, that there's a secret power. Right? Lawlessness already exists in the world. People reject God already. There's this power at, at, at play, Satan's power, but this man of lawlessness is being held back until the right time. And what's holding him back? I mean, there's been many guesses on this. Some would say world governments. Some would say the church. Some would say the, the, the gospel. But I would go for the obvious one here. It's God himself, through the work of his Holy Spirit, is holding back this man of lawlessness until the appointed time. And that's where we see that, that all of this stuff is planned and purposeful. None of this is random. God has all of the days charted. And he knows when the right time is for this figure to be released. We also see why he's released, that he's going to deceive those who already love sin. And this is really important here because it really shows uh, where the real responsibility lies here. I don't believe that the man of lawlessness is going to ward away anyone who has a true and genuine faith in Jesus. We see in verses 10 that all the ways the wickedness deceives those who are perishing or who are already perishing. They perish because they refused, in past tense, to love the truth and so be saved. Again, this would line up if, if the rapture comes and takes believers away before all of this. There's no real believers left in the world. And we know during the tribulation, people will come to faith, but there's the majority who will fall away or be deceived by this figure. So God sends a powerful delusion that they will believe the lie, and so they will be condemned. These are the people who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Essentially, it's all the people who have already rejected God or are going to double down now in their rejection of God with this figure as they race. And it's going to be clear that they love sin to begin with, and they'll love sin and wickedness even more. So as dubious and deceptive as this man of lawlessness or this antichrist may be, I think it shows that the ultimate responsibility really falls squarely on the shoulders of those who have already failed to embrace the gospel and therefore reject the truth of God. But here's the good news, and here's the whole point of all of this. It's going to be quickly defeated by Jesus. Jesus wins. And it is not even a battle. As we read in verse 8, that the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. This is really describing the battle of Armageddon. And if you think of it as this like years long, just like who's going to win, that's not how it goes. All the armies may be gathered, but Jesus comes back with his church, that includes us, and destroys him quickly. There is no battle, and that's the point here. And it's not just this temporary win or victory that he will vanish, this man of lawlessness, and evil will be bound. We understand this from the very beginning when Jesus came. 
that Jesus was described as the light of the world. He become the one who shows the way to the truth and towards righteousness and towards salvation. And the darkness will not overcome the light. Jesus wins. And that's how we face the future without hope, is that no matter how bad the world is right now, no matter how many question marks you see and, and anxieties, it's actually going to get worse but not for us. No matter where you lay on, the, on, on how you view the rapture before the tribulation, after the tribulation, we're either going to avoid all this stuff altogether or God will strengthen us and empower us to live through it and ultimately be with Jesus when the final victory comes. This is all to be of great encouragement for the believer and is not meant to to create this fixation on this man of lawlessness and scanning the, the headlines of who could it be is, is to show that we already have all we need in Jesus, that all that's needed to happen has already happened. And that's the application I want to come down to here is that this lawless one we read about is still coming. It's not even May. He is still coming. But don't let this be distracting from the righteous one who's already come. Jesus has already come. Fix your eyes on him. And there's some danger and some unhealthy fixation on the end times and the Antichrist and the law, uh, man of lawlessness. It's good to study, but it shouldn't be your main point of focus. Then it becomes a distraction for what really matters as we read in the text here. Jesus wins. And if you're on, your, on his team, you win with him. Our real focus is knowing, loving, and obeying Jesus that he has accomplished all that has really mattered for our faith and our salvation. And that's how the church becomes part of the kingdom of light that steers us away from the darkness. And he ends with, I'm going to make kind of a quick point here, just doubling down on, on, on what I just said, is that as a Christian you have to stand firm in his truth. And verses 13 through 17 are so encouraging to read. I'm just going to focus on 13 and 14. That all of their confusion and their anxiety of the future really resulted from, from losing sight of what really mattered and what they knew for sure, what they had before them. And Paul points them back to the very basics of their salvation, how this whole thing started, how the church becomes the church. And the first is that God chooses you. God chooses you. We didn't come to this faith, we didn't come into the church because we woke up one day and, and just kind of you know, put on our, our clothes and said, you know what, I'm going to be a Christian today. I'm going to work even harder to make my way into the church. God appoints and chooses all believers. And God extends this mercy of salvation to all who would have faith in His Son, Jesus. And He does this as a gift out of love. It's this great act of grace that, that God extends His mercy and this grace to you and you simply receive it as a gift. Right? He did that for you. And He saved you through the work of His Spirit. Again, this is, it's not our work. This is the Spirit's work in us that, that brings us to a deeper level of faith and love and hope. And the Holy Spirit is working in all believers right now. This belief in this great truth, not, not the lies, but the truth. And that ultimately we're going to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is justification, sanctification, glorification. The past, 
the present, and the future. All of it is wrapped up in God's divine plan and his wonderful grace and mercy to you. And that's what you've got to hold on to through all this. If God calls you and he saves you, he will also keep you. He doesn't forget you. He doesn't abandon you. He doesn't leave you behind. He keeps you. And you have to stand firm in that truth. You know, there's billions of people in the world, and so I'd assume that means there are billions of lies in the world that people hold on to. So easy to let these lies live in you, but a lie only becomes powerful if you let it live inside of you. And the only way to extinguish a lie is with the power of truth. So whatever lie you're holding on to, that you're just not good enough for God, that you've just made too many mistakes, that, that life is just too difficult, that God may not love you, or God just doesn't care, or he forgot about me, none of that is true. His word tells us something very, very different. And so extinguish those lies with the power of of his truth. And we have a deep reservoir of truth of which to drink. If you want to be hopeful in the future and healthy as a church, you need to stand firm in his truth. And unless the church is grounded in this truth, it's going to continue to be vulnerable to the false teaching and the deception and the lies that are out there. Truth brings us freedom. Lies bring us fear. And only the power of God's word has the ability to renew us in life and to give us this hope and this confidence of all that God has before us. Why would you seek anything else and why would you live with anything else? The point of this whole chapter is not to speculate the future, but to hold on to the hope that we've been given, to have confidence in what we do know. You can look to the future with wonder and mystery or even fear, but the only way to look to the future with hope and confidence is to remember the past, to remember what Jesus has already done. And there's so much left to come in God's great story, but all that matters for salvation has already happened. And that's what we do when we, we take communion as a church, is we remember what Jesus has done. There's no speculation here. There's no wonder or worry, there's a confidence that what he has done is enough. That he came, that he paid for the price of your sin once and for all, that you can be made completely new and alive in him through the forgiveness of that sin and the faith in what he did. That's what communion is, is remembering the past, which gives us great hope for the future. Our focus must be Jesus, the one who's already come to save and is soon coming to reign. And we get to do that with him. I thought a lot about that. Of this, this man of righteousness, or the, sorry, the man of lawlessness is, is one to come and drive a wedge between you and God. Right? But the man of righteousness, Jesus, the one without sin, is the one who came to reconcile us with God and, and repair our relationship with him. And of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is urging this Corinthians church I implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah, this figure we, we, we read about today that will be the embodiment of sin. We have Jesus who was without sin, who became sin to save us from sin. To pay for the price of the sin 
on the cross. And that's what we remember at communion, is that his sacrifice was enough for each and every one of us. Now, if you're new today here and you haven't uh, partaken in communion, just a, a few uh, quick uh, ideas with that. First is that communion here is, is something we do on a monthly basis. It's, it's something we do regularly as we are commanded. Uh, but it's also something we do in a symbolic fashion. We believe that the bread and the cup are meant to help us remember the body and the blood of Christ. And this is something for all believers. So you don't need any kind of uh, membership requirement. There's no class you have to go through. If you have faith in Christ, this is for you. It's also something we believe is a reflective moment as believers. And that means that you have to really reflect even in in yourself. Take a moment of the self-examination, as the scriptures say, where you come before God, you lay everything at the foot of the cross, and you just ask for forgiveness for the the things you had done or failed to do, all the, the conflict you've had in your life or with God. This is the time just to come to him, to empty your hearts before him. And so we just take a moment of silence, of reflection before God. So let's just... Take that moment together now.